0: Good morning, my name is Dave, as Hang mentioned, I serve as one of the elders here at Fairfax Bible Church, and uh, last time I got to preach, so I was told that I had so many slides and that they were, they were moving so quickly that people, all they could do was just get out their phones and take pictures of the slides, and so uh, I just want to say that that issue has not been entirely corrected, and so if you want to get out your Bibles and maybe your phones, that could be helpful. Go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3 this morning, 2 Timothy 3. While you're doing that, a little bit of show and tell for us. So I brought this bag here, and um, something inside of this backpack I wanted to share with you. This is called a textbook. Many of you might not have seen one of these recently. Um, So I'm a little bit older than maybe some in the room. I'm curious, does anyone remember having an assignment where you go to school on your first day, and you have to come back with this thing covered? And you maybe, like, use a a grocery bag, paper grocery bag. Um, And so... I've kind of noticed being a parent of school kids that these things have kind of become an endangered species. We actually saw, uh, with our kids in elementary school, we saw a total of zero textbooks. And then when they went to middle school, we saw a total of zero textbooks come home. But now in high school, we've actually seen Two textbooks, and this is one of them. This is my daughter's Algebra II textbook. I found it under her dresser, so it might not be a crucial part of her curriculum. It, this is like textbook safari for us. Um, so the lack of textbooks actually became an issue for Tay and I as parents one time. And so I want to share a little story. There's there's a bit of a passive-aggressive email exchange that occurred between Tay and I and a certain teacher. So here's how it goes. So the teacher sends an email to us and says this, parents. Here are a few details about topics on the upcoming math test in case you wanna help your child study. They're gonna be tested on three things, representing fractions and decimals using models, converting fractions to decimals and vice versa, and comparing fractions and decimals. So we get that email and we're like, okay, we wanna help our child, our daughter study for the test, but what do we do with that, right? And so this is where the passive aggressive email comes into play. And so we say, hello, Mr. Teacher. Thanks for the email, we really want to help our daughter study, but it's been a challenge. Today we spent 15 minutes trying to decipher from her notes and your email exactly what type of problem she's working on. And then we spent another 30 minutes creating our own worksheet for her to practice with. You guys should be able to see that on the screen. Um, And this is before we actually worked with her to, to do the worksheet that we made. Without a textbook, it's difficult to prepare our daughter for a test because we really don't know what's being tested. And so he replies with his passive aggressive email and he says, "Uh, good evening. Since we don't have a traditional textbooks, students will primarily rely on the notes that they take in class. So guys, this is the 21st century. I feel like we can do better. Our daughter was eight. (laughs) and So so I didn't bring her notes with me and she's a great student. but her notes as an eight-year-old were about as strong as an eight-year-old's notes would be. And so this is actually our story. This is not just one, this is one example. This has happened a number of times uh, where textbooks, not having textbooks has been kind of hard for us as parents. And so when Erin brought this home at the first day of school, 10th grade, I almost cried because I was so happy to see this textbook. So all this to say that I think that textbooks are, and you're not gonna like this, but I think textbooks are profitable. I think textbooks are profitable. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our scripture. You should see it there on the screen, or you can look down. 2 Timothy, 13, sorry, 2 Timothy 3 16 through 4 4. It says this All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. into myths. Let's go ahead and pray. God, as we dive into your word, we're about to hear from your word about the power of your word. And Lord, nothing happens this morning without your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, God, as we hear about your word, Lord, that we would move from being hearers to doers, and we need your spirit to do that. And so I pray that you would work this morning as your word is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little context for our passage. So this is the last chapter of the last words we have written down from Paul. And he's in his second imprisonment in Rome. And actually the second imprisonment is harsher than the first. It's more than just a house arrest. He actually mentions in chapter 4 that he thinks death might be imminent. And so what's Paul going to say to Timothy with these last words? What's he going to charge Timothy With. We're going to see that this morning in our big idea. I think that Paul is saying to Timothy, and I think that God is saying to us this morning at Fairfax Bible, that the words of Scripture function like no other words, and we need them like no other words. The words of Scripture function like no other words, and we need them like no other words. And this is what I want to show you. I think Paul charges Timothy with three things. I think he's showing him one, that Scripture changes us to glorify God. Two, that scripture needs to be communicated. And then three, scripture competes with our cravings. And so first, scripture changes us to glorify God. So look down, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is like one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. We're gonna just say this one, not, not 16 and 17. We're just gonna do 16. Let's say it together. If you're really good, you can say it with your eyes closed. So say it with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit of a side-by-side comparison between this algebra 2 textbook and the word of God. And so we're going to look we're going to fill in this chart together that you see on the screen and we're going to we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the method and then we're going to look at the motivation of how scripture changes us to glorify God. And so first is the method. How can, how can change actually happen? What is it telling us in verse 16? And so we've got these four things listed in verse 16. We've got uh, teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. And I think that these four attributes are sometimes thought of as unrelated. Like this verse is saying that Scripture is a sort of Swiss army knife uh, that it can do a lot of different things, which, by the way, Scripture can. And uh, it can do a lot of different things. And it can do a lot of more things than what we see in this verse 16. And so, but I think what, what watch what happens when we actually try to put these four things together. By the way, do I need to fix my mic? Is it... All right. Watch what happens, watch what happens when we try to put these four things together. So back to our textbook. So I've put together the 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 for our algebra textbook, So listen to this. If you're just waking up right now, this is not scripture. This is something that I just made up, okay? So this algebra textbook was authored by Prentice Hall Pearson and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in Algebra two that the math student may may complete algebra, equipped to move on to pre-calc. And so how... How does this textbook actually do that? What's the method that this textbook uses in order to do that? Well, chapter one teaches a lesson on factoring, and so um, it it shows the concept, and then it shares examples, and then it gives you practice problems at the end of the chapter, which you can try, and if you're like me, you're going to get wrong at first, and then you can find out you're wrong because you can go in the back of the book, and it's going to show you the answers, and this is actually a good textbook. It shows you how to get the answers. And then you try those problems again, and then you get them right, and now you're trained in factoring. So it teaches, it reproves, and then it corrects. And then you move on to chapter two, that's polynomials, and you follow the same process over and over again. And so I think these verses in 2 Timothy uh, aren't calling out the fact that the word of God is a Swiss army knife. I think they're talking about one part of the Swiss army knife, one really important thing that the word does. This is not a biblical term, but hopefully it's going to be helpful for us. We're going to call it the corkscrew of training in righteousness. The corkscrew of training and righteousness. So training happens in these spirals or cycles of teaching and reproof, and correction, and teaching, and reproof, and correction. And I'm treating this fourth word, training, differently than the other three, you might have noticed that, because the, other, uh, the fourth word, this word training, is actually the same word for child rearing. Child rearing, and so you have more specific words, you have teaching, and reproof, and correction, and then you have this more generic word, training, instruction, child rearing. So it's kind of like saying apples, bananas, oranges, and then fruit. And so teach, reprove, correct, repeat, that's pretty a typical way to train, right? So athletes train that way, soldiers train that way. Um, I would even say that a Pharisee could read verse 16 and and kind of nod their head in agreement. So here's the thing. Our flesh wants to skip each of these three things or our flesh wants to corrupt each of these three things. So we want to short-circuit the process so we end up not being changed and not being shaped to glorify God. And so we tend to want to skip or we tend to want to corrupt. So first, let's look at teaching. That's where the process starts, teaching. So how do we skip teaching? That's easy. We just don't get God's word in front of us. But how do we corrupt teaching? I think if I had to sum that up in one way, I would say the way we corrupt teaching is we make scripture about us instead of making it about Christ. So for this corkscrew of training in righteousness to even start spinning, Uh, We have to have that input. We have to have the teaching of God's Word. But what about reproof? Nobody wants reproof, and so we want to skip reproof. And so we tend to consume the teaching, and then we tend to stop right there and think that we're done. So think about it. Most of what we read or listen to doesn't have a reproof component to it. Like we read for pleasure, or we read to gather information. We don't read to find out where we might fall short. But if we do that with scripture, it's like reading the factoring chapter and then not doing the problems. And we won't get any wrong, that's nice, but we won't actually be trained in factoring at all, but we think we will think that we're actually trained in factoring when we're not. And then we'll go to polynomials and we won't do the problems and we won't be trained in polynomials, but we might think that we're trained in polynomials. I think we can be too easily satisfied by just consuming teaching, but keeping it at a distance. Like you're holding a baby that's naked and you don't want it to pee on you. <laughs> a lot of times what happens is we kind of nerd out on doctrine and we stay there. There's nothing wrong with nerding out on doctrine. But if we, um, if we think that we're done there, that's a problem. We think if we can just know more and get more information in our head that that's going to change us. But we don't turn that corner, right? We don't turn that corner from teaching to reproof. And that's a problem. So how do we corrupt reproof? I think we either divert reproof or we deflect reproof. So, so divert, right? So instead of absorbing the reproof that's coming our way, we immediately think of someone else who really needs to hear that reproof. Or we deflect it. So it's coming our way. It's going to land on us, but then we start making excuses. Or we, think we, we do what, what we see from the Pharisee in Luke 18, and we say, well, God, I thank you that I'm not as bad as those other people. Here's the thing, we've gotta let reproof land squarely on us. And here's the thing, so as Christians, as Christians we can allow reproof to land squarely on us. The reason we can is because the penalty and payment for the sin that led to that reproof, where did that land already? That landed squarely on Christ. And so if you're in Christ, reproof is safe. Matt Chandler says that every thou shalt and thou shalt not uh, is not about God trying to take something from us, but God leading us into joy. So what if I'm reading the passage, right, and there's just no obvious, like, standard that I must live up to? What if there's no thou shalt? So let's remember Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. So Isaiah has this vision in the throne room of God, and he sees God's overwhelming holiness, and he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So let's call that the, the teaching that he gets. That's the doctrine he receives. God is holy. And then almost immediately Isaiah sees his own sin and unholiness in a face of a holy God. And we see him say this, we see him say, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But if you pay attention, there actually wasn't a specific reproof. There was no thou shalt given, and yet reproof still happened. And that's really important for us to know when we're approaching Scripture. So Scripture can reprove us without an imperative. Scripture can reprove us without a specific command given. So if Scripture is showing us the glory of God, which it does all over its pages, and Scripture is showing us the mess that we honestly are all over its pages— then reproof is often waiting for us if we just turn that corner. If reproof isn't happening for you when you're reading Scripture, listen to this quote from Tim Keller. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so, if, so, so far we have in Isaiah, we have two things. We have teaching and we have reproof. But listen to verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with his tongues from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And so now we've moved out of reproof, and something's been injected into this cycle, and it's entirely different than what we see from textbooks, and it's different from what we see from athletes and soldiers and Pharisees, and it changes everything. What's being injected is gospel correction. Gospel correction. So notice this. The correction for Isaiah isn't, try harder, do better, save yourself, the correction is that through no action of his own beyond just seeing God's glory and repenting of his sin and brokenness, Isaiah is first, first, made right with God. So gospel correction starts with uh, grace and mercy and taking you straight to the cross. That's first. And then second, God's setting you on the right path. So look at verse eight. God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And so God gives grace first and then shows him how to live and deploys him to do good works and glorify God. So in the span of three verses, we go from woe is me for I'm lost to here I am, send me. How'd that happen? The grace of gospel correction. So here's the thing. If we skip gospel correction... And we just stop at reproof. We get stuck there and we just wallow in the misery of our failure, right? We, we feel like we're never going to change. We're always going to disappoint God over and over. But gospel correction makes us unstuck. And it moves us into life and freedom and joy. And so now we've got to turn two corners, right? We've got to turn the corner from teaching to reproof and then from reproof to gospel correction. And we have to do that over and over and over again. So that's the method of training in righteousness but what's the motivation what's the what's the thing that change that change is driving us toward well for this algebra textbook we want to get to pre-calc that's a great goal what's the goal of being trained in righteousness verse 17 that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work complete equipped for every good work that word complete it doesn't mean that one day we're going to be fully transformed on this side of heaven It's actually a Greek word that that means uh, being fitted or ready for something. So what are we being fitted or ready for? In this case, we're being fitted or ready for good works. So I'm sure some of us like definitions. I'm going to offer this definition of good works. Hopefully it's helpful. We don't have time to parse through it. But here we go. Good works are living out God's word, so being doers of God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit in response to God's grace, for God's glory. I'll say that again. Living out God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit in response to God's grace, for God's glory. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And so you can't separate good works from God's word. You can't separate good works from the activity of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate good works from being a response to grace and the promises of God. And good works should be aimed at God's glory. And so if good works are aimed at God's glory, whose glory are good works not aimed at? Mine, right? And so when when it says the man of God may be complete, I think completeness here is God is refitting us so that there's decreasing self-glory in our lives and increasing God's glory in our lives. And that's kind of a simple way to describe sanctification. So completeness is our little kingdom of self getting smaller, and the gigantic kingdom of God and his glory getting bigger in our lives. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. It kind of brings it all together. It says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so I want to ask us, are we seeing changing degrees of glory in our life? Are you seeing yourself throwing more and more of your full weight into the grace of God and off of your own self-sufficiency? Are there fewer and fewer corners of your life that you won't allow Jesus to touch? And lastly, are you seeing yourself more and more passionate about his big kingdom and less passionate about your little one? It used to be really hard for me to let go of of things I was excited about, Tay will tell you that when when I had expectations of something fun that was going to happen, it better happen or I would grumble and complain to God and others. Yesterday I had a plan to relax all day and watch college basketball, and then Tay and I were going to get sushi and have a glass of wine for dinner and catch up. When it became apparent at 10 a.m. that a certain preacher was not going to be able to make his way down here from from Philadelphia because of the snow, Uh, my plan for the day was blown up. Ten years ago, I would have blown up too. (laughs) God had a different plan for my day yesterday. It didn't involve sushi. He wanted to prepare me to stand here on this stage right now. And by his grace and by his transforming work, I was okay with it. In fact, I was joyful in it. God's been fitting me and he's been equipping me for that moment at 10 a.m. yesterday. And so as we close this first point, I think that sometimes that the thing that needs to happen to move us from being doers of God's word, or sorry, hearers of God's word to doers of God's word is we gotta do a little bit of a check and make sure that that corkscrew of training in righteousness is spinning in our lives. Teaching, reproof, correction, all functioning without being skipped without being corrupted so that God-glorifying works are flowing out of us as Scripture changes us. So our second point today. Scripture needs to be communicated to us and from us. This point is actually really, really important. Why am I saying that? Because Paul is actually saying that this is really, really important. Listen to his language, chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's how Paul starts out this sentence. He's dead serious. What's he gonna charge Timothy with? Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so quickly, we're gonna go through three things we see Uh, in these two verses, um, I think scripture needs to be communicated consistently, correctively, and patiently. So first, consistently. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So we're doing definitions this morning. Here's a definition. I think this is helpful. Uh, This is from John Piper. He's defining what preaching is. Piper says that preaching is expository exaltation. So expository, it's to explain and apply the meaning of something in the Bible, and then exaltation, to rejoice in what's being explained and applied. And so that's the difference between a sermon and a lecture. A sermon preaching is rejoicing in that thing that's being applied and explained in God's word, rejoicing in Christ. And so if you come to Fairfax Bible, you're going to hear God's word preached. Even if, say, we don't have a senior pastor for a season, you're going to hear God's word preached. Even if, say, the pastor was not able to drive down here from Philadelphia, you're going to hear God's word preached in season and out of season. But I want to use a more generic word here. I want to use the word communicate to describe what's going on here because we see exhortation in this verse and we see patience in this verse. And I think that implies that God's word is being communicated in a community among people who know each other. If exhortation and patience is required, so two forms of communication uh, for <laughs> two forms of communication, kind of wrapped into a football metaphor. This is how God's word can be communicated. I've heard preaching referred to as the air game, so passing the football, and then relational discipleship referred to as the ground game, so rushing, running the football. And so preaching, podcasts, uh, right now media, one-way communication, that's the air game. And then small groups, one-on-one discipleship, counseling, that's the ground game. And so regardless of whether you think it's a good idea to win a football game by using just the passing game or just uh, the running game, in the Christian life, there's no debate. You need both. We need the air game, we need the ground game, and we need them both consistently, so if you're listening to me right now, that's great. The air game is happening for you, awesome. But are you willing to take that ball and rush it behind your blockers in small group and in community? Are you convinced, are you convinced that if you just come here and throw the deep ball every time to your wide receivers, that's gonna be enough? I'm telling you that it's not. I used to go to church uh, and they had small groups and the small groups met every other week. That was nice, we got a week off. Life is busy, right? Fairfax Bible small groups meet every week. Is that a big difference? It's a huge difference. That group is family. Like that group communicates God's word to me every week. So we need to hear God's word communicated consistently. Secondly, we need to hear God's word communicated correctly, correctively sometimes. Verse 2, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I'll just say this. Sometimes... People are going to correct you from God's word, and it's going to be right, and it's going to be something that you need to hear, and it's going to be life-giving. Sometimes people are going to correct you, and they're going to be wrong. I have have a quote to share with you. It's this guy from this guy named Alfred Poirier. It's in this article called The Cross and Criticism. I'm about to share a quote with you that's pretty long. I don't like long quotes in sermons, but this article has been the most impactful article I've ever read as a Christian, and so I'm gonna share it with you. This has changed the way that I view criticism and correction. If you need to take a photo, this would be the time. (laughs) By agreeing with God's criticism of me in Christ's cross, I can face any criticism man may lay against me, even mistaken or hostile, without bitterness, defensiveness, or blame shifting no one can criticize me more than the cross has and the most devastating criticism turns out to be the finest mercy you can say you've not discovered a fraction of my guilt christ has said more about my sin my failings my rebellion my foolishness than any man can lay against me i thank you for your corrections they are a blessing and a kindness to me for even when they're wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins for which my Lord and Savior paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. I wanna hear where your criticisms are valid. I do not fear man's criticisms for I've already agreed with God's. And I do not look ultimately for man's approval for I have gained by grace God's approval. If you struggle with humility, which I do sometimes, read that quote over and over again. Here's a worse problem than being criticized wrongly or corrected wrongly. What if no one's correcting you at all? Psalm 27 verses five and six, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so do you have someone that you've sat across the table from and and said, please, if you see anything in my life, would would you correct me from God's word? Guys, if I have, if I'm walking around with cream cheese all over my face, please tell me lovingly. Not right now, that's a metaphor. And third, God wants, God's word needs to be communicated patiently. Paul says with complete patience. So here's what he's saying. So he's saying if we're holding this Bible in our hands and we're in a position to actually exhort or correct someone, he's saying that we're going to be uniquely tempted to be impatient when that someone doesn't change right? And so we're going to think that, that maybe we have this righteous impatience. But what's impatience? It's pride. Impatience, it's an attempt to wrestle control from God. It's, it's saying that my timing is better than God's timing. I think Paul knows that impatience is going to get in the way of God's word being delivered. And so we got to be careful to not let that happen. And so God's word needs to be communicated to us and from us consistently, correctively, and patiently. Third point today. Scripture competes with our cravings. Look down at verse three. For the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I've read this verse to multiple people recently. You know what every single person says? They say, that's happening right now in 2022. And I think we could jump to sort of... uh, health and wealth, word of faith, uh, prosperity gospel movements. But I want to go a different direction, which is also a very obvious direction. I have something else in my backpack here for us. This is called a smartphone. Not an endangered species, I would say. And so, uh, so, smartphones. Right. So if we were to try to explain smartphones to Paul, I think that he would, it would take a very long time, I think eventually, maybe if he got it, he would say, oh, wow, well, that's a really useful device. And then I think he would pause for a second, and then he would say, that's a really great tool to accumulate teachers and scratch itching ears. And so sometimes we tend to think, uh, we tend to think that the voices that speak into our lives happen by accident. We stumble across something online, um, and it, it's, it interests us, and so it kind of becomes part of our regular routine to check out. Verse three says that those, those, those teachers that we have, they're not by accident. It says, we accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions. Every app on our phone, every bookmark uh, that's in our browser, they're there because we made a decision to put them there. They're there because we've accumulated them for ourselves. There's a, a youth group game, you might have heard of it, where um, someone's blindfolded and they have to navigate this obstacle course And someone on their team has to shout instructions to them, but the entire other team is also shouting instructions, but they're opposite instructions. And so you have to try to zero in on the one voice that matters to get through the obstacle course, and it's really hard. And so I wonder, have we invited accumulated teachers to stand around us and just shout loudly and louder than God's word does in our lives? Verse three also says people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. So some of you might know I'm a jogger and I've developed over the past couple of years this sort of compulsive itching of my face when I run. It's like, I just do this all the time, even before I sweat. It's like the first 15 seconds into my run, I'm scratching my face and I can't stop myself. I'm convinced if you said, Dave, I'll pay you a million dollars to not scratch your face while you run, I would not get a million dollars. And so, uh, this phrase, itching ears, our ears just crave hearing what suits our passion. And a lot of times, that thing might not align with sound teaching. It's really hard to stop ourselves from scratching that itch. There are some seasons where God's word tastes sweet as honey, and there are some seasons where his word tastes like your least favorite Vegetable. And we're tempted to stop eating and we're tempted to say, okay, our accumulated teachers are going to be our food instead. This verse says, keep eating. We need to endure. Your ears are going to itch. You're going to want to scratch them with your accumulated teachers and they're going to give you a different worldview. The only way I can have this thing with me when I'm having my devotions in the morning is if I block every single app on here except for the Weather Channel and the Bible app. And my 16 year old daughter has the password. So until 6.45 in the morning, this thing is basically a brick, although it does have the Bible app. That's my anti-itch cream that I need. What is the anti-itch cream that you need? God's Word competes with our cravings, so I want to ask who is winning that competition in your life. All right, so three things for us this week, three questions to ask. When we're reading the Bible tomorrow morning... Are we going to turn that corner to see if reproof is waiting there for us? And then are we going to turn that corner again to see if gospel correction is there? Because it will be. Or are we just going to open the Bible and read that thing like the article we're going to read an hour later? Secondly, do you need to bolster your ground game? Do you need to sit across the table from someone this week and say, hey, would you be a source of correction in my life? And then third, when was the last time you looked at your phone to do a little inventory of the teachers that you've accumulated? Maybe, maybe God wants to give Fairfax Bible the gift of more storage space this week. So as we close, worship team, you can come up. There's a phrase in chapter 3, verse 16, that you may have noticed that I skipped over. So we're going to use that to finish out our little chart here this morning. We're going to look at one more thing about how God's Word changes us. We're going to look at the might of Scripture. We're going to look at the power or the authority or the source that Scripture has that it could possibly change us, the deepest parts of us, from, to move us from people who crave self-glory to people who crave God's glory. So let's look at our textbook. Our textbook has the authority of Prentice Hall Pearson Publishing. I'm sure that's a wonderful publishing company. I'm sure students love it, but no offense to that publishing company. Verse 16 says something a little better. All Scripture is breathed out by God. By God. So picture in your mind the word breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit And then through humans, onto pages, and then preserved so that he could, through the Holy Spirit, breathe from the pages into our hearts and change us from the inside out to glorify him. None of what we talked about this morning happens without the Holy Spirit. I want to show you this. Look at this phrase, breathed out by God. God's breath in Scripture shows his creative, life-giving power. God's, God's breath makes things that were dead or lifeless or static alive and animated. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Listen to this, John 20, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But you've got to hear this one. Mark 15, 37. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So there was a moment when the world-creating, life-giving, scripture-sourcing breath of our Savior willingly stopped so that our record of debt could be canceled. He, he gave up his breath so that we could have new life breathed into our dead souls. And then on the third day, his breath started again and will never stop for all eternity as he rules and reigns for his glory. That word changes us from the inside out. What happens when we really believe that scripture functions like no other words and we need it? Like no other words, look at Acts nineteen twenty. It says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the question is, is God... Is God's word prevailing mightily in you? God's word changes us and God gets glory. And it's way better than sushi. Let's pray. Jesus, we love your word. We know that your words are like no other words. God, I pray that our practice and our habits and our behaviors and our priorities and our posture would reflect that truth. God, as we receive teaching, I pray that we wouldn't stop there, Lord, that we would turn the corner to reproof. And Lord, we turn the corner again to gospel correction. Lord, we need your spirit to do that. Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you equip us for good works to glorify you in Jesus' name?